remind you that we're in a section in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 7 and into chapter 8, where Jesus is at the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is probably the second most popular feast behind the Passover. They had, from what I understand, two different feels to them. The Passover, a very somber time of gathering, remembering the sacrificed lambs. And, of course, we look at it and remember Jesus. But for them, it was remembering how the death angel passed through Egypt and God delivered them. But the Feast of Tabernacles was a little bit more joyful. The people who lived in Jerusalem would build lean-tos on top of their houses so they could sleep outdoors and look up at the stars. And people who could travel would come and they would camp out around Jerusalem. I, I still have a mind thinking it had to look like a giant RV park with all these lean-tos and tents built up. And they would sleep under the stars. And they would use that to tell their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that under these same stars... Your ancestors slept after God delivered them from Egypt. And God led them by day with a cloud and by night with a pillar of fire. And He provided manna and they would remember. Remember what God has done. Remember Jesus didn't go to the feast when His brothers wanted Him to. But He goes later. And about the middle of the week He has started teaching in the temple. And that's where we pick up now in verse 25 as people start to really question Okay, who, who is this man? What's he about? Can he really be the Messiah? Follow with me in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. You know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him for I, I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. Then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Let's pray again. Father, we ask your blessing on this time of proclamation. Give us ears to hear you, Lord. Incline our hearts to, to understand who Jesus is. Father, I recognize that many of us have grown up learning about Jesus, knowing that he's the Messiah. And Lord, I pray that if we have grown apathetic about that truth, please, Father, stir within us a passion that is in awe of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. 
And Father, for those that have never been introduced to this truth, who reading this are just beginning to think about the ramifications of that, I pray that, Lord, your spirit would just move within them, that they really begin to wrestle with who Jesus is, that you would lead them to know Jesus as Savior. Be glorified, Father, I pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, with the rise in popularity of the superhero movie, one of the things that's been introduced is the origin story. Now, even if you've never seen a superhero Marvel or DC movie, you're still familiar with the idea of an origin story. For example, these are part, uh, stories that have become part of our American pop culture psyche. For example, here's your quiz for this morning. Name the superhero who tragically saw his parents murdered when he was a little boy and that drove him to become a crime fighter. Batman, oh, quick. All right. Who came from another planet via rocks? Oh, man, we're on top of things now. All right, don't answer anymore, John. Here's another softball one. Who as a teenager was bitten by an insect? Okay, softball questions, okay? Why in the world do these origin stories matter? Well, they set the hero in context. By knowing a little bit of the background, you understand what drives them to do what they do. Even now, origin stories for villains are being developed so that we can understand why this villain is so bad. Origins set the context for purpose, for why something is done. And it is the origin of Jesus that the people of Jerusalem are starting to wrestle with. Follow, just walk with me through this text. Notice in verse 25, he says, The people of Jerusalem said this. Now, there's a distinction drawn here. Remember, there are tens of thousands of people that come from outside of Jerusalem. But then there are also the locals, the people that live in Jerusalem. Now, when he says the people of Jerusalem, these are the locals. And notice the question they ask. Is this not the man whom they, that's the Pharisees, seek to kill? So in other words, all the guests and the visitors, they don't understand the machinations and the thinking of the Pharisees. But the people of Jerusalem do. They're the ones that are around the Pharisees. They understand the, the power-hungry nature of these leaders. And they had also heard the rumblings that the Pharisees were starting to plot to do away with Jesus. So their question is logical in verse 26. If the Pharisees, the religious leaders, want to kill Jesus... And here Jesus is, speaking openly in the temple, why aren't they doing something? And the only conclusion that the people of Jerusalem can draw is this. The authorities must have discovered some new evidence that Jesus really is the Messiah. Otherwise, they would arrest him. But now this dialogue, this internal and probably external dialogue begins. Verse 27. But we know this man can't be the Messiah. No matter what the religious authorities have found, what they think they discovered, this can't be the, the Messiah because we know he's from Nazareth. We know where he's from. And the Messiah, when he comes, no one will recognize where he's from. They had bought into this tradition that had developed that the Messiah would be a bit of a man of mystery that would appear on the scene. So their thinking is very logical. You won't know where the Messiah is from. 
We know where Jesus is from, so he can't be the Messiah no matter what the religious leaders have found. But Jesus answers them. And this morning I want to draw our attention to verses 28 and 29. And the reason I want to do so is because in verse 28 it says, So Jesus proclaimed. In other words, Jesus is speaking very publicly and very forcefully. He is emphasizing this. If Jesus were typing this in an email, it would be in all caps. If he could highlight it, he would highlight it. He is emphasizing this truth. So therefore, I want us to look at this in depth this morning. Jesus says, you know me, but you don't know me. He says, yes, in a way, I'm from Nazareth, but ultimately I'm from God. I may have been born in Bethlehem, but I have existed eternally. That's the irony. He says, you know the facts, but you really don't know me. So he starts in verse 28. He says, you know me and you know where I come from. You know from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, yes. But I've not come on my own accord. Now what Jesus is teaching there is basically he's not come on his own. He's come with a purpose. He has been sent with a purpose. So he's saying, you may know the facts, but you don't understand the purpose. If you understood the purpose, you would follow me. If you know who sent me, you would follow me. But because you reject me, you don't understand the purpose and you don't know God. And so Jesus is being very clear that he has been sent with a mission. There is something directing his life. That when he comes to earth, he's not here for a vacation. He's not here to check things out. He has come for a specific reason. Jesus' life on this earth was pervaded with purpose. A mission drove him to do everything that he did. Purpose changes things. If we follow the example of Jesus, we must recognize that you and I have been given a purpose by God, a mission. Our purpose is to glorify God through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Now, what you do as a vocation is secondary to that purpose. Some of you are teachers, some of you are bankers, some of you are bakers, some of you are, are, are retired. It doesn't matter. Your purpose still exists. And your purpose is to glorify God through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And if we know that purpose, we will follow the example of Jesus and have a direction, have a, a passion for that purpose. Because when you know your purpose, there is a passion about that. Now, I cannot help. When I read purpose, my mind goes back to something that happened in my past when I was in high school. And it's a basketball story, okay? So I'm going to go glory days, McMinn County, Cherokees, for just a few minutes. So bear with me. As my, my wife Jody says, the older I get, the better I was. So bear with me, all right? Remember my senior year, we are playing the Sweetwater Wildcats. The game is very close. Halftime we go in, I think we are like tied, and our coach is hot. I mean, red-faced, slobber-flying hot. He looks at the statistics, and he comes in, and he rips in to me, I'm not exaggerating. He looked at the stats and he said, Herod, you've got one rebound. Do you recognize you've got one more rebound than a dead man? Puts things in perspective. He said, when you go out there, I want you to get a rebound, son. And he said that same thing after we come out on the court. He gets me again. You better get me a rebound. Now, I'm being nice. I went on that court with one purpose. First shot Sweetwater takes, 
I get big Herod big. Elbows out, I go up, I grab it, and I land, and I chin the ball. I give a good hard pivot to make the outlet pass, and I nailed a Sweetwater player right in the head. I cannot help that his head was where my elbow was going. And the referee had the audacity to call a technical foul on me. My coach was thrilled. I walked over there, he was going, yes! That's what I want you to do. You know what? You, purpose. Somebody had said, this is what you need to be doing. Go do it. You're not focused. You're not doing it. So Jesus is saying, my life out here is not diffused. I am living according to the purpose of God. That's why when his brothers were saying, you go to Jerusalem, have a Messiah reveal. Jesus said, no, that's not God's purpose right now. That may come later, but right now my purpose is to follow God's direction. That's why he emphasizes at the end of verse 28, he who sent me is true and him you do not know. When he says, him who sent me is true, he is saying, God is the real source of my mission. So therefore, if you don't believe me, you're not believing God. That's why he says, you don't know him. That's, that's scandalous to them. If anybody would know God, it's the people of Jerusalem. They're there. The temple is in their midst. The teachings of the Pharisees are around them. And Jesus is saying, God's given me my mission. You don't believe me. You don't know God. You understand why they wanted to kill him? He's being very point blank about God and who God is. And he's saying that regardless of what you think of me, God is still the author of my mission. His mission originated with God. Now there are two questions this brings up. Two questions that really should guide our, our interpretation. One is this. What does this tell us about God? The fact that God sent Jesus tells us something about God. What is it? What does this teach us about God? The second thing follows closely upon that. What is Jesus' mission? He is saying, I've come from God. God sent me. So why did God send Jesus? And what is the mission? Let's start with the first one. First thing we want to see is this. And Ian, if you'll go to the next slide, please. When we start talking about this mission, we're going to start with the fact that this mission of Jesus shows the love of God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Manifest means shown, revealed, on display. You don't want, want to know what the love of God looks like? Look at the fact that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So we start here. Now, this idea, though, that God is love calls for definition. Because in our culture today, even non-believers will say, yes, God is love. But their idea of love is this ambiguous emotionalism that basically says, everything is fine, whatever you want to do, it's okay because God is love. That is not the love of God. The love of God does not negate God's holiness or His anger over sin. Those two things are not held in contradiction to one another. It is because God is love that He has a hatred for sin. Because when you love, you are passionate for the best for that person. And sin is never the best. So therefore, God is both love and holy. Now, I want us to realize a couple of things about this love of God. The love of God is a knowledgeable love. What I mean is this. God does not ignore our sin. 
Emotionalism says, sweep it under the rug, don't address it, don't deal with it. But God's love is a knowledgeable love where he turns not his eyes away from that, but is well aware. He doesn't ignore sin. God is not removed from this world and acting as if things don't happen. As I shared with you last week, I just... Out of curiosity, I've started reading Hamptonside's book on desperate ground about the chosen reservoir battle at the beginning of the Korean War. I don't know much about the Korean War, so I was very interested to learn about this. One of the things that has shocked me that as I've been reading Side's research is that there was a huge disconnect between General MacArthur and his staff and the generals and the fighting force on the ground. Did you know MacArthur never spent one night in Korea while he was overseeing that war, before he was fired by Truman? The main general never spent one night on the area that his troops were fighting in. After he designed the invasion of Inchon, and they, the Marines began this push forward, the command came from MacArthur and his officers, push for the Yalu River which is the river dividing China from northern Korea. Push for it. It'll be ours. But what if we encounter resistance? The answer came back from MacArthur. You won't. China will not get involved in this war. However, hundreds of thousands of Chinese cho soldiers answered differently at the chosen reservoir. Completely out of touch. Not knowing what was going on. Our God is not like that. God knows the fallenness of this world. He knows that where there should be love, there is hate. He knows that where there should be purity, there is impurity. He knows that where there should be fidelity, there is infidelity. He knows that where there should be generosity, there is greed. He knows that where there should be compassion, there is indifference. But the glory of our God is this. Even in knowing all of those things, our God's love is a redeeming love. He knows, and where you and I would shake our hands and say, that's it. We may be generous and give even one chance, two chance, three chance, but God is gracious in his redeeming love. The idea of redemption is a wonderful, wonderful definition. It's a great gospel word that means purchasing back. It carries with it the ideas of reconciliation. It carries with it the ideas of making right that which was wrong. And from the very beginning, God, because of his great love, set about to redeem creation. Genesis 1. You read th through it, you find the familiar refrain. God, created, God said, let there be light, and God saw it, and it was good. God separated the water so there was land and there was sea, and it was good. Then he creates humanity, man and woman. And what does the scripture say? God saw it was very good. I've been intrigued by an idea from Dr. Douglas Stewart, scholarly, a Hebrew scholar, who said that that phrase, it was good, very possibly could be a Hebrewism, a way of saying, and God loved it. It makes sense. God said, let there be light, and he loved it. God created the earth, and he loved it. God created the animals, and he loved it. God created man and woman, and he really loved it. Fits with John 3.16, doesn't it? For God so loved the world. But then what happens after his creation rebels against him? 
Yes, they're excluded from the Garden of Eden. Sin enters the world and with it death. But as God is addressing Adam, Eve, and the serpent, look on the next screen. Ian, if you'll go to that. What does he say? God says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring will bruise or crush your head. This is known as the first gospel. Even at the beginning of rebellion, God says, I'm not done with you. I will redeem you. I will crush the enemy. I will quell the insurrection. And I will bring back that which has acted against me. That is the greatness of God's love. As Psalm 103 says, as high as the heavens, so much higher is his steadfast love. When we read in Isaiah where the scripture says God's ways are not our ways. It's not talking about God's providential plan. It's not talking about God's omniscience. It's not talking about God's omnipotence. It is talking about God's steadfast gracious love that you and I cannot even grasp think about it you and I may give a person one chance two chance but after that we would say you're done but God is faithful in Hosea he gives Hosea a very interesting command Hosea I want you to go marry a prostitute so Homer or Hosea goes and he finds Gomer now let's just get over her name that was probably in the top 100 baby names at that time Mary's Gomer. Mary's a prostitute. Hosea chapter 3, you find out that Gomer has gone back to her former lifestyle. She's left Hosea. She's out on the streets again. God says, Hosea, go get your bride. Lord, do you know what she's doing? She left me. Go get her, Hosea. Why, God? And God says, because I want my people to understand my love for them. That when they go and they prostitute themselves for sin, I will redeem them. When they leave me, I will redeem them. God's hand is never so weak that it cannot grab you again and pull you back. That is why God sent Jesus for the purpose of redemption. So how does this redemption occur? What is this mission, this mission that springs from the love of God? Up on the screen, you'll see Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Now, that's in small print, but don't despair. We're going to walk through it, if you'll go to the next slide, a little bit more in depth. Isn't that better? There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the mission. This is explaining the mission of Jesus. When it says, there, therefore, now no condemnation, now, that means previously there was condemnation. Condemnation is a word that encompasses the, the, the judgment as well as the sentencing. And to condemn a man carries with it the connotation of death. He is saying that because of our rebellion, the sentence had been given that we were worthy of death. But now, there is no condemnation. The sentence has been removed. But notice, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So now we start to understand the mission. The mission is to remove the condemnation that rested upon people for their sins. How does that happen? Notice the very next word of verse 2. For. You could also translate that because. Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Notice again, in Christ Jesus. From the law of sin and death. 
That law refers to this principle, this truth, this, this force. This life-giving spirit has set you free. Free from the law, the principle, the force of sin and death. So what came about because of our rebellion, sin and death, we have been set free from. But notice, here's your third part of this quiz this morning. What phrase is repeated two times in those two verses? I'll give you a clue. In Christ Jesus. The condemnation is not going to be removed any other way than in Christ Jesus. I'm not going to know freedom from sin and death outside of Christ Jesus. So how did Jesus do that? Go to the next slide, if you will, Ian. Thank you. For God, once again, because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God had to work. So God gave the law and he said, this is my standard. But the law could not set us free. The law had the power of righteousness, but our flesh, because of its weakness, could not do those things. We could not measure up to the law. But notice what God did. By what? Sending his son. Remember John 7, Jesus says, it is God who has sent me. He who sent me, God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. That means humanity for sin as a sin offering he condemned sin in the flesh now think about the reversal that takes place here you and I were under the sentence the judgment of death because of our sin but when Jesus took on the likeness of humanity sinful flesh the likeness of it and became the sin offering he pronounced judgment on sin and death Jesus looked at death and said, death, you are guilty, and your sentence, death, is death itself. You are no more. He did that upon the cross. And he says he did that, why, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So what God required is fulfilled by faith in Jesus. Notice that phrase, fulfilled in us, not by us. You and I still struggle with a, a, a sin nature that will try to work in rebellion against God. That's why it is so crucial. We walk according to the law of the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. But in us, in other words, the Spirit of life is working in us that we meet the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Jesus applied to us via His life. And how do we know this has happened? Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The mission of Jesus was to bear our condemnation on the cross. There's an old hymn that puts it like this. In our place, he stood condemned. That's why John records something very different from the other Gospels. According to John in John 19, the last word of Jesus that he spoke on the cross was this. Tetelestai. It is finished. Isn't that interesting? It is finished. Why that emphasis? Because this idea of mission. Jesus is not saying, I'm finished. He's saying, the mission you gave me, God, is finished as I die now. That's why it calls for decision. That's why in verses 32 through 36, they still can't understand who Jesus is. The Pharisees decide to act to save face. They send people to arrest Jesus. And in a move of, of irony, Jesus says, I'll be with you a little longer than I'm going to him who sent me. In other words, 
I'll let you arrest me when I decide you can arrest me. Now's not the time. But the time will come where you'll seek me and you won't find me. It's a reminder to call out to him while we can. To seek him while we can. Not to presume upon the grace of God. Because there will come a time where it will be everlasting too late to call out to Jesus for salvation. That's why he says, seek me. Seek me now. So I ask you today, now that you know the origin of his mission is from God, and you understand that that mission was to take away the condemnation of sin, are you willing to trust him? To recognize that his mission is about the love of God and redemption? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will.